Please pray with me. Father above, I pray that on this day your spirit would fill our hearts. I pray that you would transform us, that we would be conformed into the image of your Son. Lord, draw us close to yourself. Amen. If you're wondering why I'm about to preach from the floor rather than the podium, I'm hoping that it will keep me brief today. No, really, still trying to figure out the architecture of the church. I'm grateful to be with you. Today is Trinity Sunday, and it's normal on Trinity Sunday to actually speak about the Trinity as a whole. But I want to focus on one particular aspect, one particular thing. I want to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In doing this, in a certain sense, you could just say that I'm continuing Michael's sermon from last week, the sermon from Pentecost, talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I want to talk about a particular thing that the Holy Spirit does. It's the one that Jesus actually mentions in John 16, the particular role that he has. And so I want you all to hear these verses again. Jesus looked at his disciples, and I'm jumping in in verse 7, and he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me, conserving righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will speak not on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus looked at his disciples and he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. To your advantage. I still struggle with that one, to be honest. Wouldn't it be easier if Jesus were here, able to see him and touch him right now? Wouldn't that make faith easier? I feel that way. But he says, it's to your advantage that I go. And the reason why that it's to your advantage is because of the gift of the Spirit. There's so many things that we could actually say about the gift of the Spirit, how he intercedes for us. He's praying for you in this moment with groanings too deep for words. We could talk about the way that he forms his fruit in us so that we become a totally different sort of people. We could talk about all different aspects of his ministry in the church. But I just want to mention, or at least begin with, the one that Jesus mentions. The Spirit will convict the world. Convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And not only will he convict the world, he will lead the church into truth. Those are the things that I want to begin with today, although we'll get back to the others. I don't want to take a whole lot of time. And so I'm going to sort of fly through this idea of convicting the world. But if there's things that linger in your mind, don't hesitate to ask me later. The basic scenario is this. Jesus has been talking to his disciples at the Last Supper of the hostility to come. 
He's told them that the world hated me and so it's going to hate you. He's told them, don't be surprised when they treat you the way they treated me. He says to them, they're going to think that they're doing a service to God when they drag you before the synagogues and when they kill you. They'll think that they're serving God in all these moments. There's hostility to come. And in the midst of that hostility, he says to them, and this is chapter 15, verse 27, he says, you will bear witness for you've seen me and you'll testify about me. You're going to get dragged in front of people and you will be a witness bearer. If you want to imagine what this looks like in your mind, just simply think of the story of Stephen standing in front of the Sanhedrin, dragged there, bearing witness to Jesus in front of these people who are hostile to him. Think of Paul standing in front of any one of the various crowds in any one of the cities that he went to, bearing witness to Jesus in front of a crowd oftentimes filled with hostile people. And so Jesus says, you will be my witness bearers. But the beauty of the Last Supper discourse is that over and over and over, Jesus says to them, in that moment, you won't be alone. In that moment, you won't be alone. I'm going to give you the comforter. I'm going to give you the advocate. I'm going to give you the one who will come and prosecute those persecutors on your behalf. I'm going to give you the one who argues in your defense. I'm going to give you the spirit of truth. This is the context of what he's talking about when he says the Spirit will convict the world. It's in this context then that he says, and the Spirit will lead you into truth. All of these things begin to make sense then together. Standing in front of people who are oftentimes hostile to the gospel, hostile to the testimony of Jesus, the Spirit leading the followers of Jesus into truth as they testify. And so then you say, well, what is this conviction then that's going on that the Spirit's doing? And it's very simple, that through the words of the followers of Jesus, as they speak to these audiences, people are convicted. Some convicted to salvation. That's the glorious thing. Hear the message, convicted of sin, convicted of what righteousness ought to be, convicted of the judgment that the ruler of the world has been judged with, the judgment to come. And they hear this message and they're cut to the heart. Think Peter on Pentecost. And they say, what do we have to do to be saved? But others are convicted in a very different sense because they're convicted to judgment when they reject the word that's told to them. The Spirit works through the testimony of the people of God, leading them into truth so that the Word of God goes out into the world and some are convicted to salvation, others convicted to judgment, all depending on how they respond to this word of testimony, this word that the Spirit has filled the people of God with, this word about Jesus that they declare to the world even in times of hostility, and some hear it in turn. Turn to God, but some hear it and turn away in the convictions to judgment. This is what he's describing. This is this ministry of the Holy Spirit filling them with truth as they speak in the world that they're in. The thing that amazes me, the thing that's sort of glorious as I think about this passage, is just the magnitude of what it means that we are pulled and called into this ministry. All throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus says over and over and over, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. I don't do anything unless he shows me to do it. I don't say anything unless he tells me to say it. 
I and the Father are one. Here in this moment, he says, and yet all that is mine is given to the Spirit. And now, the Spirit gives it all to you. He leads you into truth. This is astounding. That as the Son receives a ministry from the Father, the Spirit receives the ministry from the Son. And then in what is so staggering, so dignifying, so undeserved, we receive that ministry from the Spirit. We, brought into the unity of the Trinity, we, called into the ministry and the work of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit filling us with the testimony of Jesus so that we might declare it to the world. And then through that, the Spirit working to convict, to bring people to salvation. This is what we've been called to. Like I said, I wanted to be brief there because I want to go somewhere else with this. Augustine said of this verse, I need a whole sermon just for that verse, and I just gave you one in five minutes. If you have questions about it, because it's much more complex even than that, the joke about that verse, the convicting with sin and righteousness and judgment, is that there is many interpretations as there are commentaries. If you have questions, talk to me. But I want to go somewhere with that. The church frequently takes this ministry, this ministry of testifying with the Spirit, and we've misused it. There are so many different ways that the church has misused the standing in front of the world to testify. There are times that the church has actually stood up and they've spoken the truth. They've spoken the truth of the Spirit, but they've done it without the fruit of the Spirit. They've spoken what Jesus' testimony is, but their character has looked nothing like Jesus. We've made mistakes along the way. There are times that the church has actually gone into this thinking, it's my job to do the conviction. It's our job to force the response. And they've sort of beaten people over the head and sort of forced the issue, leaving no room, not recognizing the idea that Jesus' words are clear. The Spirit does the convicting. Our job is just to testify. Our job is just to speak. The Spirit does the conviction. There's times the church has made a mistake because we've stood up and we've said, this is the message of Jesus, and the thing that we've been delivering isn't even the message of Jesus. All sorts of different things, political ideologies, heresies, all sorts of things have been coded with the name of Jesus. And the church has declared them saying, this is what it means to be a Christian. And yet the thing that they're talking about isn't the message of Jesus at all. We've made mistakes in this ministry that we've been called into. Those mistakes mean that there's need in us and for us of guardrails. And I'm not going to go all the way down this today, but we need to know that if we stand up saying this is the message of Jesus, we really are declaring the message of Jesus. That thing that we declare to the world needs to be submitted to the scriptures, submitted to the church universal. It needs to be judged by others. We shouldn't say lightly, I'm speaking the words of Jesus to you. There's guardrails like Jesus gives them actually in the Last Supper discourse. If you love me, you'll obey me. There's guardrails, not perfection, but very simply, if we're not seeking to live like Jesus, we shouldn't be standing in front of people yelling the words of Jesus at them. There's guardrails, guardrails that the Scripture offers us. But I actually don't want to sort of go down that road all the way today because I want to end with a different moment 
a different thought. To be honest, I didn't think that those guardrails were the sort of primary thing that we need to hear. As I thought about, in a certain sense, what it is that we, what, what it is that I need to hear from this word of Jesus, the thing that I was struck with was a very different sort of mistake that the church can make. Not the mistake of standing up in front of the world and saying, thus says Jesus when it's not Jesus' words at all, or thus says Jesus when there's no character of Jesus involved. But that's actually the mistake of forgetting this thing entirely, of acting as if Jesus didn't promise to send his spirit, falling off into a ditch on the far side of the road, not needing guardrails for how to curtail this, but instead forgetting that Jesus made this promise at all. After all, how easy is it to live as if the Spirit has not been given? How easy is it to live as if there is no Holy Spirit? We exist in a denomination that, preside, that sort of prides itself on its liturgy, on its good theology, on its reasonableness. It, you even actually hear definitions of Anglicanism that are scripture, tradition, and reason. Whenever I hear that one, I want to go, really? Reason is number three and not the spirit? Scripture, tradition, and spirit it ought to be. But scripture, tradition, and reason is often held as a, we get squeamish if people are too emotional, if there's anything spontaneous in our worship. You may protest at this point and go, that's not me. That's not me. Fine. Be our guides. Lead us out of this. But for the rest of us, we are people that we've got it all buttoned up. We know our theology. We know our liturgy. It's so easy to fall into the trap of thinking that we fix matters by thinking rightly and by doing rightly. My effort is what matters. I'm going to accomplish it all. And there's a moment when I think we need to be prodded and say, is there room for the Spirit there? Do you trust that the Spirit would actually come? We think about Acts 2. We use this in our description of the church. The church devotes itself to apostolic teaching, and we go, check, we do that well. The church devotes itself to the breaking of bread. Check, we do that well. We love the sacraments. The church devotes itself to the prayers. We do that well. We've got a liturgy for it, and we put spontaneous prayer in too. We do it well. The church devotes itself to generous fellowship. We do that well. But you know what undergirds all of Acts 2? The presence of the Spirit. Fervent overflowing in joy and worship, works of power, people's lives being transformed. The Spirit is there underneath and behind and animating all of it, transforming people, drawing them to Jesus. My point is this. If we make an error, it's oftentimes the error of forgetting or not believing that Jesus meant what he said when he said, I will give you my Spirit. My question for y'all this morning, what if he meant what he said? What if he meant what he said in this church? What if this church would become a place where the Spirit filled us and overflowed us? Fervent joy in worship, hearts transformed, 
powers of sin broken, filling out, spilling out into the community, the message of Christ seen in these buildings all around, people transformed as the Spirit shook and moved in this place. What if Jesus meant what he said, that he would send his Spirit? What if this were the sort of place this became, that the Spirit filled and animated every moment, moving and shaking? What if it were true in your own life? In the recesses of the heart, the places where darkness and hardness abides, what if those were broken up and light shined into them? What if the fruit of the Spirit were made manifest? Patience that grows, not because you've worked harder and gritted your teeth more, but the patience that comes because of the security you have in Jesus Christ. What if all of these things, the Spirit's presence, filling you with gratitude because suddenly you knew what grace meant, that you were loved, that you were forgiven? My point this morning is the Spirit does a manifold number of things. We could talk about all these ministries for a long time. My question is more basic. Do we believe the Spirit would show up at all? My desire, my prayer this morning was very simply that we would become a group of people who begin to hunger and pray that God's Spirit would fill us. Jesus said very bluntly in Luke 11, there's no decent father who gives a stone when his son asks for a loaf or who gives a snake when his child asks for a fish. This is his comparison. How much more will your heavenly father give the Spirit to those who ask? This is the promise of our Lord, the promise of Jesus. So my request for y'all is be people with me who begin to hunger and pray and ask for the Spirit. Let us become expectant, believing that Jesus meant what he said when he said, I will give my Spirit, I will give my Spirit. Let us begin to pray for that. Amen.